hear the word of the Lord. It was nearly time for the Judean Passover, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found them selling cows, sheep, and doves, and the money changers sitting there. He made a whip out of cords and drove them out of the temple, sheep, cows, and all. He spilt the money changers' coins onto the ground and knocked over their tables. Take these things away, he said to the people selling doves. You mustn't turn over my father's house into a market. The disciples remembered that it was written, The zeal of your house has eaten me up. The Judeans had this response for him. What signs are you going to show us, they said, to explain why you're doing this? Destroy this temple, replied Jesus, and I'll raise it up in three days. It's taken 46 years to build this temple, responded the Judeans. And are you going to raise it again in three days? But he was speaking to them about the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the Bible and the word which Jesus had spoken. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that the prayers of our hearts and the thoughts of our minds and the words that we speak today uh, would be pleasing and honoring you. In your son's name we pray. Amen. You know that, uh, that day in... Jerusalem, that pre-Passover day, was probably like any other. A day like any other, a morning like any other. Let's just say for the sake of argument, uh, a Monday morning, 9.30. You know, the coffee's just settling in to remind you that you're alive. They didn't have daylight savings then, so you didn't need the second cup. But you're just settling into your routine, and the merchants are arriving there in uh, the temple that day, and they have their sheep and their cattle, and they brought them into the temple complex. And with them, too, are, are the dove sellers, and they have these nice, just perfect doves that are in the, ca- the cages that they've stacked up, just ready to be sold. And there, too, are the money changers. And they set up shop and they have out their, uh, their tables and on them uh, is currency from every part of the known world. There are drachmas and denarii and shekels and mina and they're all, all right there. Uh, just ready to, ready to go to work, ready to do business. And you know this is a busy time of year, this time right before Passover. Maybe for us it's uh, a little like that time before Christmas when you try to go shopping and it's just really busy. Uh, maybe something like that. Or uh, did any of you try to go to a Tupelo yesterday by any chance? Uh, it was, so I stayed at the house, but so I'm told it was jam-packed. Everybody who'd been locked up in, I don't know, let's make fun of Union County, who'd been locked up in Union County for two weeks and couldn't get out, all of a sudden can escape and they go to Tupelo. And it's busy. It's a busy time. But really just, just another day. Just another day. You know, it's, it was like that before, before Passover um, because Jewish people from all over the world, if they could, would uh, try to come back to Jerusalem because it's there that they could, uh, in a really full way, remember this old story that was so special to them, this story of when God called His people out of slavery in Egypt and brought them to this new land, brought them out with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. 
And God in that story consumes the Egyptians in the sea and brings out the people safely into this new land, a new home. But as they were going about their business on that ordinary day, many people were probably wondering if that story had the same meaning that maybe it it used to. You know, that old story of liberation, who, who knew if it was even true? It certainly didn't seem so now. You know, the reason people had to come back to Jerusalem and they needed money to be changed and they couldn't just bring their own livestock was that Uh, the people of Israel had been scattered all over the world. And it all started with Babylon. When Babylon came in and conquered Israel and destroyed the temple and hauled off some of the Israelites into captivity, into exile in Babylon. And even though they'd been allowed to come back when the Persians took over from the Babylons, it turns out that that was just the first in a long series of conquerors. And after the Babylonians would come, Alexander the Great and his armies, and after Alexander the Great, along with a few others, would come finally the Roman Empire. And that's who was in charge, really, on that Passover or that pre-Passover day in Jerusalem as people were going about their business. And you know, the temple too, there was something different about it. The, The Babylonians had destroyed the first temple. And it was, a real, it was a nice temple, a great big thing, but, but when the, the, the people of Israel had been allowed to come back, they, they rebuilt. They built a new temple. And eventually, under, under Herod the Great and others, it had grown into be this massive, beautiful, uh, huge building, one of the biggest in the whole world at the time. But it wasn't the same. It just wasn't the same. Because the old temple, the old temple had the presence of God. God God sent His own Spirit to be in that temple. So when you brought your sacrifice to the temple, you were meeting with God. And when the priests did their work in the temple, God was right there with them. But it wasn't like that anymore. Because even though the new temple is bigger and grander, the Spirit of God's not there. So as people went about their business and they made sacrifices, you got to think if just in the back of their mind there was this question of, Is God really paying attention to any of this? Does God even know that we're here? Does God even care? Is God going to hear us when we speak? Is God's presence ever going to be here again? And it's almost like uh, for the people of Israel, even though they were brought out of slavery in Egypt, and even though they were able to come back from exile in Babylon, it's almost like they're still in exile. It's almost like they're still in captivity in their own land. And it's almost like God Himself has gone into exile because God, who was supposed to be there, isn't there. And there's just sort of maybe a feeling of emptiness, a question on this boring morning, uh, on this boring, busy morning, if what they're doing even matters. Whether they, they think of it consciously or not, they, they carried with them this weight. And between the sounds of the cattle and the sheep and the doves and the clinking of coins, all the ordinariness of an ordinary day in the temple, there was something more at work. 
there was doubt and there was fear. There were people talking, you know, maybe if we just uh, got ourselves morally right and we did all the right things and followed the law exactly, then God's presence would be with us here again. And other people were talking about revolution. Maybe if we threw out the Romans and uh, the Messiah would then come and we could set up, uh, you know, set up a kingdom and maybe, maybe that would be the way that God's presence could return to us. And in the middle of all of these questions and plans walks a man into the temple. This wasn't a guy that anybody knew. He's been in Bethany. He's been in Galilee. The last we saw him, he was at a really great party uh, for a wedding in Cana, but he hasn't been yet to Jerusalem. He hasn't been yet to Jerusalem. And in he walks into the temple. And he doesn't say his name. His name is Jesus. It means God saves. He doesn't say his name, but all of a sudden, he makes a whip out of cords and he chases out the cattle and the sheep. And he goes up to the sellers of doves and he says, and he says to them, take these things out of here. Stop making my father's house a marketplace. This isn't the Jesus that we see on the pictures uh, where he has nice golden hair and warm blue eyes. And he looks like the kind of guy uh, our grandmothers would say, oh, what a nice boy. Now, this Jesus is strong and fierce and even angry. And his disciples look on this scene probably in shock as he does this, not sure what to do. And they remember this line from Psalm 69, zeal for your house will consume me. Zeal for God's house consumes Jesus in this moment. You know, when we talk about people being angry, sometimes we say that they're beside themselves. Or we might say that somebody's consumed with anger. And the way those images work is that if you're beside yourself, you're not really acting like who you are. You're outside of your own body. And when we say that someone has been consumed with anger, the idea is that they're almost burnt up with it. So they're not really who they were meant to be. But that's not how it is here with Jesus. He's consumed, not with anger, but with zeal. And when he's consumed, he is in fact not less than who he's supposed to be, but he is showing who he really is, who he really is in the midst of this anger. And what's he so angry about? Uh, Why does it matter that the temple has become a marketplace? Jesus doesn't seem to have a problem with marketplaces. We see him out. He's with people all the time. He's around markets. He never says anything else bad about marketplaces. So it can't be that he just doesn't like marketplaces. And it doesn't seem to be that he doesn't like the temple. He calls it my father's house. I mean, that's That's pretty high praise for the temple. So it's not that it's a marketplace and it's not that it's the temple. But what it is that he's so angry about is that his father's house is not what it's supposed to be. And that God's people are perhaps not who they should be. And so he's consumed consumed with zeal because what he's there to do is to show God's presence again to the temple and to be God's presence in the temple, to be God's presence with his people. He's consumed with zeal because he's there to clean things up. He's there to put things in the right order. He's there to bring God's presence again into the people. You know, the temple was supposed to be the place where God dwelt. And when Jesus walks into the temple that day, it's as if God's presence is coming there again. 
And the people of Israel were to be God's people, the people that God had a special relationship with. And when Jesus walks into the temple that day, it's to restore that relationship. Zeal for your house will consume me. That's what the line from the psalm is. That could mean two things. Zeal for your house, the house of God, could be the temple itself. And that's sometimes the way that the Old Testament talks about it. Jesus is, or the psalm, if it's applied to Jesus, is saying, yes, zeal for the temple, because Jesus is there to bring God's presence there again. But it's also zeal for God's people, because when we talk about the house of God, we're also talking about God's household, the people who live with him, his people. Jesus is there not just to make the temple right. He's there to make the people right. He's there to put everything back in right relationship with each other. Now, if we'd started reading a little bit before and had started in John 1 instead of John 2, you would have heard at the very beginning of John 1 these words, and you may well know these by heart. Uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word became flesh and dwelt. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh. And your translation might say dwelt among us, and that's, that's right. But the, if you want to take that really literally, it's the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. The Word became flesh and pitched His tent among us. And what John is doing with those words is calling on this image of what God's presence looked like in the Old Testament. Because when God makes a covenant with His people and they put His commandments in the ark and they set up this tabernacle, this tent, they pitch a tent and God's presence comes with the ark into the tent. And so to say that God became flesh and tabernacled among us, pitched his tent among us, is to say that God's presence is with Jesus in the same way that God's presence was in the tabernacle with the people of Israel. And now Jesus walks into the temple, the temple after the tabernacles, where they took the ark, and it's where God's presence filled the temple in the first temple. And so Jesus walking in there, it's saying not only has, has God pitched his tent among us, not only has he tabernacled among us, he is templed among us. He's built his temple right here. And what his temple looks like is this prophet from Galilee, Jesus. God's very presence is with him. This is God walking around in the middle of and so God has brought His presence. What everyone has been waiting for, what the people of God has, have been waiting for, His presence has come again into the temple. And you know, if we had continued reading this story a little bit earlier in John, we would have also heard uh, John the Baptist saying these words when he sees Jesus. Behold, the Lamb of God. Here's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Exactly what Sandy was, was singing about. And so when Jesus drives out all of these sacrificial animals, he drives out the cattle and the sheep and the doves, and he gets those out of here, why does he get them out of there? Well, it's not that he's against sacrifices. It's that he himself is the sacrifice. The lamb has shown up. God has brought his presence, and God has brought the sacrifice right there. And so God is with his people again. Zeal for your house has consumed me. That's what his disciples remember when they, when they look upon this scene. And when we talk about consuming, uh, we use this, in, I mean, it's true as in the, with the Greek and in the English. Uh, to consume means to, to eat, right? Uh, 
Zeal has eaten Jesus up. I mean, this is You can't get much more of a physical metaphor than that. God is so present that God can be, it's like you can eat him. And when we go to the communion table, we remember that too. We say, this is my body and this is my blood. We recall those words from Jesus. And even though we don't think that it physically becomes the body and blood of Jesus, we say that God is really present there, that God is really is with us, is with us in, this, in that time. And so this is reminding us, this is telling us that God is there in this way. God is there, this God that can be eaten up, this God that can be consumed, this God who is present whenever we gather because, as Paul tells us, we're his body in this world. This God, that is the God who walks into the temple and starts yelling and throwing things and turning things over and chasing away animals on that ordinary morning because this is the God who takes ordinary stuff that we live with and that's how he dwells with us. He is not averse to our ordinary life and the physical world that we live in, but God comes and dwells with us. It was true in this time. It's true when Jesus walks into the temple and that's equally as true for us here today. Now, how do we know how do we know any of that? How do we know that what I told you was, was legitimate? Well, we know it for the same reasons that the disciples know it at the end of this passage. We know it because Jesus has proven it true by being raised from the dead. And people naturally ask, the people naturally ask Jesus, can you give us a sign that what you're saying is, is true? And what they haven't realized is that what he's just been doing, that is the sign that is the sign. Uh, how do we know this is true? And he says, I can destroy this temple and raise it again in three days. And he's not talking about the temple building. It's going to be destroyed about 40 years after Jesus dies. And it is no more. But the temple of Jesus' body will die on another Passover season in Jerusalem, in the same city a couple of years later. But he will rise again. And in his rising, it's proof that all that he did on that day and all the days throughout his whole ministry was legitimate and it's true. And it's the same way that we know it's true. You know, Jesus isn't there that day because he wants power. And in fact, Paul will tell us that God's power is made perfect in weakness. We recited that together a bit ago. And Jesus isn't there because he wants praise in the psalm that we read as the, uh, as the call to worship it talks about the heavens are declaring the glory of God. The very earth is his handiwork. And that day and night comes forth speech that praises God. And even though we can't hear it, the praise is there. Jesus isn't there for power. He's not there for praise. He's there so that in dying and rising again, we can find new life with him. Because the very presence of God has come to his people. And whenever... You're around the people of God. You are there in a very real way with Jesus' physical presence in the world. The hope that comes from this passage is the hope that God is not distant and unconcerned. That God isn't some, in some faraway place just watching what goes on. But that God will show up and God will bring his presence 
to us. And in the same way that God walked into the temple on that ordinary day in Jerusalem, God uh, walks into our lives every day, if only we have eyes to see it. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that we would know your presence among us. We pray that we would honor your presence as the body of Christ by living for you. And we pray that when we feel like death is all around us and suffering is all around us, we would hold on to the promise uh, of new life, of resurrection, of a new creation that comes when you upturn the tables in our lives, when you cleanse the temple of our hearts and bring us to a new and living hope with you. Lord, all this we pray in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.